Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. And we've got the perfect juxtaposition here, I'd say. Last week, we were looking at the pursuits of, for the most part, fairly wealthy Georgians as they celebrated the successes of the city with all sorts of sensual pleasures. This week, our recording takes place a very short distance away, physically speaking, but intellectually, the two shows are miles apart. We're looking at the history of protest in the city, to which the correct response is, no, we're not. It happens that my guest this week is Jewish, and of course we're bang in the middle of Hanukkah now, so to Jewish listeners, Chag Urim Semiach, I hope you're enjoying a good holiday. Somebody yet to enjoy a good holiday is the fellow who is working on the roof of the Bishopsgate Institute, which is where we start this week's show. You know, sometimes you're so engrossed in a conversation you don't notice what's going on in the background, and it's only when you listen back that you realise that the background noise sounds like the building is actually falling in. It's not. They were doing some sort of work on the roof. And uh, thanks, as always, for your comments on Twitter and Facebook and also on the comments section underneath the individual episodes on Londonist. Uh, HH Geek, a regular contributor, says about the Peeps episode recently that he's looking forward to actually being at the exhibition. Plenty of time uh, still to do that, of course, and over the Christmas period. He or she says, one thing that's bugging me about all the coverage of this is that everyone is presenting Peeps as being a fun lover despite being a quality bureaucrat since when were the two incompatible. Is it possible that within the soul of the fun-loving bureaucrat, the two aspects of their character are slightly more firmly partitioned than they are in uh, someone else? I don't know. Uh, Emma Kay says, since I'm in Seattle, this podcast is the closest I'm going to get to the Peeps exhibition. Many thanks. Well, you're really welcome. And uh, one of my favourite comments recently, uh, do you remember Bonnie McBird, who was talking about her Sherlock Holmes novel? And we've got a comment here from Emma Bridge. She says, I want to go drinking with this woman. She seems like top-notch company both as intelligence and entertainment and that's my assessment of Bonnie McBird as well that's if she can find the time to have a drink all right let's crack on hey baby let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound you ain't never seen the light before just a strong throw from your front door from a deserted Bishopsgate. With me, David Rosenberg. He's the author of Rebel Footprints. Hi, David. Hello there. Rebel Footprints, just glancing through it, there was a challenge from one of its reviewers in one of the broadsheet papers. Uh, Of course, it's a book based around walks in the East End, and the reviewer found it highly improbable that anybody was really going to be walking around the East End. Well, um, over the last few years, I've probably taken um, more than 2,000 people around the East End of all ages. The youngest one actually was about three months old, and I'm planning to um, ask her in about 10 years' time what she remembers about the Battle of Cable Street. Uh, (laughs) And the oldest one was over 90 when she did the walk. She's still alive. She's uh, 92, 93 now. But, um, yeah, people of all ages and also from around... 20 different countries. I mean, but mainly people that have had some connection with the East End. 
and we're going to be upping that number to 2001. We're going to be going on a bit of a walk in the second half. Where are we going to be exploring? Well, I think we could go to the streets in Spitalfields, like Hanbury Street, which had building where very important campaigns were launched, and also the street um, next to that, Princelet Street and Fournier Street. Are, are there, there's, a, there's a lot of history there. So let's get to your book, Rebel Footprints. What strikes one immediately is that this is uh, centred around protest and dissent. And what better place to be talking about that than here at this hotbed of dissent, historically speaking, the uh, Bishopsgate Institute. What angle are you taking in your book? Well, it's very much about a history from below. It's about ordinary people and the struggles that they took part in in order to create better lives. And it covers a period from the 1830s to the 1930s. And I kind of deliberately contained it within that period because the struggles of that, of that hundred years, they fit together almost like a jigsaw. They're around social justice, they're around rights, they're around democracy, they're around equality. And London was a cradle for a lot of these struggles. And in particular within London, um, East London was because as London expanded, it expanded to the east first in terms of manufacturing and that was a place where lots of workers were and so a lot of struggles that eventually happened in different locations in London happened first around the east end. Well, that seems natural, really, doesn't it? Because this is where the, the workers were, wave after wave, this is where the workers were... Yeah, and it was... People came to the East End knowing there'll be work there. They came from other parts of Britain, they came from rural areas, but also they came from other countries. And the East End has had more immigration um, over several centuries than probably other parts of London. And one of the themes in the book, which comes up in a number of different chapters, is about the particular role that migrants have played in helping to push forward um, these struggles for change. Is there a common feature of the struggles going on there? Is there something that you could point out and maybe something that carries through to the struggles that we see going on today? Well, I think it's, it's very much about people engaging in collective struggle. I mean, there's lots of individuals mentioned in the book, and I know that when I was taking days to compile the the index at the back you know I realized how many individuals I'd covered but in order for those individuals to get included in the book they had to be in a way committed to collective change it's not about one person standing up and doing something it's about being being part of a movement seeing themselves as part of a movement and recognizing that change does come when people strike together when people protest together when people campaign together and it's also very much about people... I mean, the word rebel, um, it, it actually means to fight back again after a defeat. Um, that's, what, that's the kind of uh, etymological origins of it. And it's very much about people who don't stop at the first hurdle. Yeah, they, they, you know, they may try to win something, like, for example, Ben Tillett, who was a Dockers leader, a few months before the great dock strike of 1889. He supported workers who had become unionised in taking up a struggle on the docks, and that was, in, uh, that was in October, November 1888. And that strike there eventually failed. But he could see within that that people were you know, willing to take action and, will it, and, and had a vision that actually they could actually achieve things. And then a few months later, he was able to be one of the leaders of a, 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 a really, really important strike that sort of changed the East End and actually um, changed the country. When you've been looking back across these periods of intensified dissent and there's a few that come to mind straight away with my limited knowledge of it so the late 1880s seems to have been a particular time the first world war surprisingly there were a lot of strikes going on then there was a general strike later in the century the 80s not so much in london but well the print strikes actually how do these waves work is there something that energizes people at particular points well you see i think the 1880s is a really interesting case in point because the point that a lot of people refer to is the match women's strike of 1888 followed by the gas workers a few months later who who won without a strike 
the, the eight-hour day. They were the first workers in London to win the eight-hour day. And then a few months after that, you've got the dock strike, which spreads to all the kind of factories and warehouses close to the docks, and, and it become, becomes almost a general strike in the East End. But that didn't come out of nowhere. That came out of um, two factors that happened in the, in the 1880s. One was it, um, that you had a number of radical organisations formed in that decade. Socialist organisations, anarchist organisations. Before that, people who were radicals talked of themselves as free thinkers, radicals, radical liberals. But here you had explicitly political organisations that took from Karl Marx's ideas the idea that the workers would be the agents of change. And so they produced newspapers. So there was a, there was a lot of agitate, political agitation. At the same time, you had battles for free speech. Um, you had, in, 19, in, in 1887, there was a big clash in Trafalgar Square um, when workers went to Trafalgar Square in tens of thousands and they were campaigning to have places of free speech where they could express their ideas about how society should change. They were also protesting about unemployment. Unemployment had been a big problem in 1886, 1887, and and they were also uh, protesting about Ireland, which was a hot potato, and that affected Irish workers here. And in the east end of London, there was a large number of Irish workers. So these kind of three issues brought people um, out in protest and it wasn't just about establishing places like Trafalgar Square as free speech it was also about establishing local free speech pitches where people could actually put political ideas about changing society and that was being responded to in a very uh, repressive way by the state at the time out of that ferment you know came also people's confidence to actually challenge the system yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. We've spoken about free speech very directly in a, a recent episode, and mm. there are, as we know, some regimes around the world whose repression of free speech mm. is brutal, and they'll happily lash people or put them to death for their mm. for expressing their views. Obviously, there are different forms of expressing mm. protest or uh, attempting to change the established mm. view, lobbying being yeah. one of them. It seems like the kinds of protest you're talking about are the easiest to criminalise. And so I'm, I'm interested in that place where the... Uh, people protesting feel the license or feel the feel empowered to voice a protest and the the pressing back of the establishment what, what can we talk about that front line yeah uh, we think of trafalgar square today um as a kind of natural place of protest it's a place where lots of demonstrations end and you have rallies um but when trafalgar square was was open to the public in the early 1840s um the government soon got alarmed when it was started to be used as a place of protest by the Chartist movement, and they could see how many people could pack into it. And um, that's we, we better have a sidebar about the Chartists very quickly. Yeah, and the, Char- and the Chartists, they were a movement that developed in the 1830s who were fighting for democracy at a time when one in seven men had the vote, no women had the vote, and they, were, they put forward a six demands for democratic change. And they were very active in, from the late 1830s to the late 1840s. And that was the period in which Trafalgar Square was open to the public, and, and they filled it with demonstrators. And then soon after that, it got re-landscaped, and they put fountains in there, and they broke up the square, and they made it harder to have so many people there. And in fact, Trafalgar Square itself, the opening to the public was delayed because there'd been a stonemason strike in 1841, which delayed the building of Nelson's Column. Um, so that was an indication that there was class struggle, industrial struggle, um, even in that period. But it was, it, you know, Trafalgar Square was fought for as a place of protest, and that was eventually cemented, in a way, in the late 1880s through the, through the big demonstrations there. Um, Hyde Park, Speaker's Corner Hyde Park, 
only really got established as a speaker's corner around 1870. Clerkenwell Green was used earlier, and Clerkenwell Green was um, a traditional area of area of protest. And today you've got the Marx Memorial Library there. It's used as an assembly point for May Day demonstrations today. But that's got a long history of being a place of free speech and a place where radical ideas um, were put forward. In some of these places, the first people to use them were not political. They were religious preachers. And the government didn't mind having a whole range of religious preachers standing in these places. But when they became, um, when the majority of speakers there were secular political preachers, that was seen as very threatening by the government. But free speech is a very hard thing to repress. And the more the police and state try to repress it, the more people resisted that. And, and it was very important for the organisations that wanted change to use those kind of free speech venues because their access to the wider public was not easy. Eventually a number of them created their own newspapers, but using their own newspapers, addressing people directly through kind of mass rallies and, and meetings in, in open spaces, I think was extremely important in, in the protest movements. Uh, it strikes me that we might have blurred, I don't know whether it's a distinction that you would make, but it seems like there might be a blurred distinction here between perhaps at the one end of the scale, fighting for free speech, and that's a, a clearly a virtuous fight, and at the other end, the withdrawal of labour to improve one's pay, for example, which is less clearly good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, although that there is a connection between the two in the sense, like, for example, in the match women's strike, um, of 1888, where women in um, the Bryant and May factory in Bow um, came out on strike for two weeks. Um, they were on terrible wages, and even the terrible wages they got, uh, bits of those were disappearing every week because they had a system of fines in the factory where if you talk to other workers, spent too long in the toilet or dropped matches, you could be losing, could be losing money from your regular pay. Um, and there were, if you had dirty feet, I gather, you could be fined. Yeah, yes, yes, and there was, there, was, there was a whole list of the penalties for, for different things that you, that you did and where, where, where money was taken from what were... I mean, they were earning four or five shillings a week, the women that were working there, and Charles Booth at the time, who was mapping poverty, reckoned that 18 to 21 shillings was a family wage that could just about keep people on the poverty line. But during their strike, once they were, once they were on strike... They didn't just stay at home. They went to different places where public public places where they could address the wider public, so as to garner support for them for their strike. Um, like Mile End Waste was one in particular, which was a, um, a space not far from uh, Whitechapel Station, and they would have regular meetings there. They would march to the West End. Um, they'd petition Parliament, but also use any spaces like Clerkenwell Green along the way. So, so there was a kind of link between what people did in industrial struggles and kind of utilising um, the places that represented those um, landmarks where where where, they, where the battle for free speech went on. I should ask uh, as well. What about Clerkenwell? Why was that a hotspot? Clark- Clerkenwell had a history. It was a place where there were lots of skilled workers, male, male skilled workers, and they were the main um, category of people that took part in the Chartist movement. And in the movements just before the Chartist, there was an organisation which grandly named itself the National Union of the Working Classes. And they held activities uh, within protest activities and campaigning activities within the Clerkenwell area. Um, there were about five or six places within London that the Chartists were very strong and, and, and Clerkenwell was, cert- was certainly one of them. We're getting ready to get our jackets on and head outside but I wanted to gauge the landscape as you see it, having researched and written this mm. book. How does the uh, protest landscape today compare to what's gone before? Well, it's, it's a funny thing um, that today we have every available means of communication you know, we can just send an email in seconds, we can use Twitter and whatever. And yet, 
the people in this period that we're covering, 1830, the 1830s to 1930s, um, without any of that technology, were able to bring people together in very large numbers um, to, to fight together their rights and in some ways um, were, were more successful in doing that than, than today. Today, people engage a lot in what is called clicktivism, yeah, signing online petitions, but that's different to people knocking house to house to ask you to sign something or calling a meeting in a local, local community centre, a local public space. It seems to be some ways harder today to have those strong collective, collective struggles there's definitely uh, what you know people were fighting from a much lower base in terms of what they had and when we go on protest today um, we're in a way standing on the shoulders of everyone that protested over decades and decades to bring us in general a standard of living that is very different to the standard of living that most people had but that doesn't mean there aren't a number of things to still protest about and there are definite echoes in kinds of some kinds of protests that happen today like for example the Occupy movement when it created a tent city um, in front of St Paul's and that became a focus for a whole number of issues and campaigns and to me that was a little bit reminiscent of what happened in Trafalgar Square just before the demonstrations in 1887 because the unemployed had started to camp out there and started to hold meetings there and then you know it wasn't long after that that you had this huge protest movement people arriving to join them um, in protest there I sometimes get the impression, and I, I realised as I was formulating the question that my impression is coming through TV dramas and, and reliable historical records like that. But one often gets the sense of passion and seriousness about militancy of yesteryear. And I was thinking about the way in which, for example, the suffrage movement was yes. received by, the, by the, probably the majority of the general yeah. public, comparing that with the Occupy movement. And there was a certain derision going on from a large proportion of the, the mm. population, it seemed, um, certainly a vocal proportion. And I'm wondering whether, if you look properly mm. at uh, some of these movements in the period we're discussing, were, were they also uh, belittled and demeaned and disregarded? Yeah, and... and um I mean, the suffrage movement was um, largely ignored by the establishment, and that was part of the reason it took on more kind of militant actions in order to get itself a hearing. But the suffrage movement is also interesting in, in another way because um, there was a significant gulf between the East End suffragettes and the West End suffragettes. And that's something that I bring out in the book, in that the West End suffragettes tended to be much more middle-class dominated. And it was actually the West End suffragettes who engaged in the most militant individual actions, whether it was setting fire to uh, a pillar box, stones going through, um, through government buildings and also hammers going through the windows of private shops and, and, and businesses. Um, but those women could engage in those actions because knowing that they may be arrested, they may do time in prison, but there was also, they also had a cushion you know, in terms of their, there'd be somebody to look after their children, there'd be an income coming in um, to their household. Um, whereas if the suffragette movement in, the, in East London, which was a mainly, it was overwhelmingly a, a working-class suffragette movement, if they engage in actions that resulted in imprisonment, that could be a very, very serious thing for their family. It might be the woman involved might be the, the sole breadwinner of that family. And, they tend, and a number of them did get imprisoned, but it was more for sort of random arrests when they were in confrontation um, with the police rather than deliberately doing an action which would risk imprisonment but also might give a chance to highlight the struggle of the movement. Um, so, and I've got two chapters in the book that relate to the suffragette movement, looking both at its West End um, style and, and actions, and also um, focusing on the East End one. And those two stories 
have been melded together in the film that's ha- uh, that's around at the moment uh, around the suffragette movement, which I think shows things like the workplace conditions in the East End very well. It shows the brutality of the police response to them extremely well. But I've I've got is, I've got questions about the history and politics that is conveyed through it. It's very interesting when you start processing each mm. protest movement through that prism, mm. wh- whether it reaches right across the capital or whether it's limited to one particular wealth area, yeah. social mm. group. Um, mm. We're going to take a break and a word from our sponsor. If you like the podcast, then share the love with our sponsor, The Week magazine. After a word about them, we are going to find ourselves on uh, which street? I think we'll go to Hanbury Street. OK, see you there in about 30 seconds. The Week magazine is a concise, refreshing and balanced take on the news from the past seven days. Taken from over 200 print and online sources, we give you the best news, comment and opinion from the UK and overseas, bringing you up to date with everything you need to know. What's more, you'll also get the lighter side of the news, with the latest arts, people, food and drink, travel, properties and much more. Available in print, digital or both, it's the perfect solution for anybody who wants an intelligent and independent view of what's going on in the world. Don't just take our word for it. Get your first issue for free. Sign up at www.theweek.co.uk forward slash Londonist. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf. With me is author David Rosenberg, who is, I'm sorry to say, a liar. We are not in Hanbury Street. <laughs> We're in Princeton Street, the next one to Hanbury Street. I, I took a diversion on the way, but I wanted to um, show you a place that relates to my own kind of historical fascination with the area of the East End. We're standing opposite 21 Princelet Street and my my grandmother came as a child immigrant uh, from Ukraine um, to the East End and uh, with her parents. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com and her parents uh, lived on the first floor of number 21 Princelet Street. Um, today in Princelet Street, these are, these are f- four-storey houses with a basement, um, which today um, there's normally one family living in, in the whole house. What's one of these worth, do we know? Uh, several millions, I would think. But um, at the time when my family were living here, um, it was very different. There were several families within the house, and at the time they were living there, there were around eight families in this particular house with one outside toilet. And the basement of the house um, and the ground floor were, were factories, workshops. Um, and, um, and my family who came here, my, my great-grandfather and, and his wife, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, Um, They struggled once they came to this country. They came with three children. There was a fourth child who had died young in the old country. And the narrative is that with immigration, um, life eventually gets better. Um, But it was always a struggle for work and against poverty. And by the early 1930s, their three surviving children had grown up 
and got married uh, and moved out. Um, there was Isaac and Rebecca left there here in Princelet Street. And one day he went to visit one of his daughters and asked if he could borrow some money. Um, she wasn't going to say no, and uh, she lent him the money, um, and he used it to buy carbolic acid, which he drank and, oh, and okay. killed himself because he couldn't see um, a way forward. Uh, and the person who lent him the money was was my grandmother. So, um, but I'm, you know, I don't think that was a unique story. We hear a lot about the rags to riches, but there was also rags to rags. <laughs> Uh, or even riches to rags and that made me in it, it kind of when I knew that story through the family that kind of increased my interest in researching the kind of um, poverty of the area the struggles of immigrants and um, and I've had I grew up in Hackney the next borough along um, but I've had strong connections with the East End um, when I was 16 I was coming here to work on a Sunday morning in a warehouse uh, owned by my mum's cousin. And in my early 20s, I was researching for a, a master's degree, a dissertation about anti-fascism in the East End. In the late 1980s, weirdly enough, I was on this same street working at number 11 for an organisation, the Running Me Trust, who do research around and information around racism and discrimination. So we were working just a few doors down from where my, my family had, had been living. Um, and in my period there, I felt very connected to the struggles of later immigrants, the Bengali community, who were then very much, very much um, the, the, the dominant group in the area in terms, of, in terms of numbers. But that is also changing because gentrification has pushing the Bengali community further east. And in the street we're standing in now, Prince Street, um, to, the west, to the west side of Brick Lane, you don't see Bengali faces and also in the other streets around here. There's, there's very big shifts happening uh, right at this moment. We're talking of shifts in, in direct opposition to the great wisdom offered by Donald Trump on areas of London being inaccessible to terrified police. Actually, the war against racism. If we think back to the, the National Front and to yeah. Cable Street, which, of course, is coming yeah, up for yeah. its 80th anniversary commemoration, it's, uh, it's yeah. been good news. Well, I would, say it's, I would say it's generally so, but racism is still a significant factor and it comes back in a, almost in a cycle. But that cycle can be very strong against particular communities for a while. But in general, London has become a much more accepting tolerant multicultural city um, and when it's um, I mean in the 1970s late 1970s the National Front would gather at the end of Brick Lane and Bethnal Green Road on a Sunday morning and they would stand there selling, trying to sell their newspaper they'd have a bookstore they'd have a lot of their supporters there and when they got bored they'd put all their stuff away and then rampage down Brick Lane, throwing stones through windows, attacking Bengali people on the street. And eventually the local community, particularly led by local Bengali youth organisations, built up enough support to push them out of the area. Now, um, two or three years ago, the membership lists of the British National Party, who were the kind of successors of the National Front, those membership lists were leaked on the internet. And if you were interested enough to look through the thousands of names and addresses, you'd find that hardly any of them were in inner London. Inner London has become a fascist-free zone in that sense. The danger to the community now is not so much from the racists, but it is very much from the economic divide and processes of gentrification, which, are, which, having brought people together in a very multicultural place, are now threatening to make some places more exclusive and other places not, and sort of to create a, a new divide um, in society. Let's nudge further down the street. Yeah. I know there are one or two places here which have uh, yeah. great significance. And when I first met you this morning, within about three sentences, you introduced yourself as a Jewish anarchist. It's, it's I've said Jewish socialist more than that. All that I don't know. I, I've got, a, a, um, I've got a, a socialist head and an anarchist heart. <laughs> but, uh, but, the Jewish an but the anarchist movement, before, between the 1880s and 
the First World War was the strongest radical movement on these streets that we're um, walking around. It was the strongest movement that was um, that was helping workers form unions in sweatshops and fight for... They fought in, in, in the late 1880s for the 12-hour day. They went on strike for the 12-hour day as opposed to the 14- to 18-hour day. And that strike was particularly interesting um, in terms of the solidarity between different communities because that strike went on in, in the summer of 1889. And um, seven and more than 7,000 immigrant Jewish workers, Yiddish-speaking immigrant Jewish workers, were fighting, as I say, for, that, for those kinds of demands for shorter hours and not to be given work at the end of the day and told, do it overnight and bring it in in the morning. Um, and they, <laughs> so it was, you know, it was very serious, the th- things they were striking over. And four weeks into their strike their employers were standing firm against giving in to their demands. Their strike fund was getting very, very low. So in order to sustain the people on strike was becoming really difficult and it looked like they were going to have to go back having won nothing. But I mentioned the dock strike earlier. Um, The dockers were also largely immigrants, but they were Irish Catholic immigrants. And Irish Catholics, East European Jews, not necessarily best buddies, naturally. Um, but a delegation from the Jewish, Jewish Tailors Union went to the Dock Strike Committee and put their case to them. And they came back with a promise of a donation that came through a couple of days later. And it was the largest donation they received during the whole strike and enabled them to say to their employers, we can keep this strike going. And their employers could see the whole season's clothing just stuck there in the workshop and not going anywhere. And within a few days of that donation coming through from the dockers, who were mainly Irish Catholics, the strike was settled and they met the demands of the workers on strike. And there was a unity between the dockers and the tailors that carried through even until the 1930s during the Battle of Cable Street, when the dockers in particular were helping, supporting the Jews against Mosley's fascists. Now, I think I've seen a gathering together of different interests in, for example, the Occupy protest, and that seemed a lot less definable than what you've just described. Uh, chaotic, even. Well, yeah, and it's part, in a way, it, it also relates to why my book finishes in the 1930s, because the Second World War was a real watershed, and I think the struggles that we've seen since the Second World War have been much more eclectic, um, much more kind of um, here, there and everywhere. So is this a successful divide and rule policy from uh, up on higher? Are are our interests spread too thin? (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, mean, obviously, people who have something to lose from giving in to the demands of protest movements will do what they can to divide those movements and to badmouth those movements. Um, But it's also because people... I don't know, maybe it's to do with technology and our ability to sort of find out what's happening in every place in the world instantly, that our struggles have become less localised. And that, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, because, you know, we do live in one world and, and, and global, you know, we, the global is, there are global issues. But I think we're in a different situation to that period which I've described in the book where people were internationalists, but their actual main focus of their struggles was very, very much on their locality. It strikes me that with a shift in what we do for a living, Mm. it becomes increasingly difficult to make an impact by withdrawing one's labour. Yeah, and, and certainly in London, you have to search quite a way around to find the sort of industrial areas of London. One of the chapters I have in the book is about Bermondsey. And actually, if you walk around Bermondsey, you can still see a number of factories that are still there. But you also see the ones like um, the, the, the big sort of food processing factories that have now been turned into luxury flats. And also back in the East End, I mentioned the um, matchwomen's strike at the Bryant and May factory. The, Bryant, the buildings are still there. It's now called the Bow Quarter, and it's a gated community. 
you know, and it was the, it was the one where they had the um, missiles during the Olympics. And I was I made a comment on Facebook at the time to say that a strike at the match factory in in, in that year would be something different. We should uh, note that we've moved up the street, and it's number six, uh, Princess Street. I wanted to tell you about because in this building, actually, if you look at the pavement here, there's an image um, built into the pavement of a musical instrument. So it tells it tells us maybe there was a a place of entertainment here. And what it was, it was the very first Yiddish theatre in London. And eventually there were about seven or eight different Yiddish theatres in London from the middle of the 1880s through mainly until the 1930s, although one survived till the 1960s. But this particular theatre has, has an interesting story. It was in the basement at, here at Number 6 Princelet Street, and it, it was called the Hebrew Dramatic Society, although Yiddish rather than Hebrew was the language in which they, where they were performing. And in the basement here, there were 600 people filling the seats every night for about seven months and one night they were doing a play and the storyline of the play included a fire and they used a theatrical device to have a spark and some smoke somebody in the audience thought there was a fire and shouted fire there was a stampede to get out 17 people were crushed to death in the stampede to get out and it was never again used as a Yiddish theatre and was lying here empty. And people were superstitious in that community. They thought there was a curse on the building. But, well, what's the best thing that can happen with empty buildings is that they're made useful again. They're squatted and made useful again. And it was squatted and made useful by young immigrant radicals from the Jews of Eastern Europe who came here who turned it into... Uh, what they call in Yiddish a Volkskirche. It means a people's kitchen. It was run on a, as a cooperative, and they were producing workers' food at workers' prices. And it was all going swimmingly as a cooperative enterprise until the festival of Yom Kippur, in 1904 and Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar when religious Jews and even a lot of not very religious Jews fast for 25 hours spend the day in synagogue praying to God to let them live for another year but the people running this cooperative were the most secular and atheistic amongst that immigrant community and for them it was business as usual and but there were people walking down this street on that day who were going to a synagogue, which was at number 19. And they saw a delivery of food to the people's kitchen on the day when, when, when other Jews are fasting and an argument broke out. You know what it's like with an argument. A few people get involved. A few people who are not involved get in, then get involved. There were thousands involved in the, in, around here punching the lights out of each other on the, Yom Kippur. on the holiest day of the of the um, Jewish calendar. And I've got one more Yom Kippur story around the corner in Hanbury Street. Let's head around there. Yes, I th- if this is the story I think you might yeah, be about to tell, this is the <laughs> ultimate protest. <laughs> yes, yes, this is, this is, um, this is uh, I suppose, what would be called um, a kind of rather daring sort of protest, but one which I think is... Um, it's very interesting. Just as we're, as we're on our way to it, I wonder whether you're conscious with the sort of subject you're covering of any people who might be considered to be right-wing commentators or historians covering the subject of protest. Oh, yeah, yes, definitely. But I, I mean, I can't deny that I've um, written my book with a great deal of sympathy for the people and the struggles that they were part of. Yeah, there's different narratives left-wing narratives, right-wing narratives, and I think that's good because history ought to be about controversy. It ought to be about contested ideas. There is no one single narrative, and I hope that these kind of things will continue to be debated. But we're... Tell you where we're standing now. We're, we're in Hanbury Street, outside, opposite a very impressive building at number 22, which was originally built as a Huguenot church, and later it was acquired by the Church of England. There's a big church around the corner to here, Christ Church. They took over this building eventually. I should say the building we're in front of, if you uh, weren't invited to think of it as a church, it wouldn't necessarily strike you as a religious building. There's something perhaps uh, slightly grand about the windows, which are in a vaguely Art Deco style. You could just about make out a religious sense in the way that the windows are positioned. This, this reflects very much the Huguenot style. And you know, the windows have got these sort of arches at the top. 
that that sent the central uh, feature around the windows I suppose is indicative of a, of a Huguenot religious building as I say later the Church of England acquired this building but in the 1880s late 1880s um, the people of the area they weren't necessarily so in much in need of another religious building in the area but they wanted a secular space and that was really important for people engaged in campaigns of, of, of protest campaigns for change because one of the ways that you could popularize your struggle amongst the wider community was to print off handbills small leaflets to tell people we are on strike or this is what we're campaigning for come to a meeting and find out about it and where you would come to a meeting was Christchurch Hall also known as um, Hanbury Hall from the street Ham- Hanbury Street and it, the hall at the bottom of the building could take hundreds of people during the match women's strike Annie Besant, who was a left-wing journalist who helped popularise the strike and gave a lot of support to the striking women, she spoke about that strike here. Um, Eleanor Marx, um, Karl Marx's youngest daughter, who lived in the West End but spent a lot of her time in the East End supporting particularly the gas workers, she spoke here um, about their struggles. Emma Goldman, who was um, a kind of anarchist celebrity of her time international anarchist celebrity of her time who went from Russia to America visited the East End in 1899 and she did three meetings here that were to raise money for a newspaper called the Arbeiterfeind the Worker's Friend a Yiddish anarchist um, newspaper and if she was speaking hundreds would turn up and um, on the leaflet advertising the meeting she did here, probably the most important line on it was entrance five pence because that small entrance fee could bring in a lot of revenue for that newspaper which was inspiring and mobilising um, the struggles of the sweatshop workers. So it's got, it's got a lot of history, um, but what's happened to that building now also tells us something about London because most of it now has been converted into luxury flats and it's in a street with the streets around here that's happening in a number of these streets Um, when I was working in the 1980s around the corner as I was coming to work I could look through the gratings at ground level into the basements and these days you'll see some very nice kitchens in those days I would see Bengali workers with sewing machines making clothes and I'd see Bengali families living in the flats you know it was the, the, these houses had become multiple occupancy flats and now that has changed though those those houses belong to a, a very rich sector of the community the rents went up the people who were working and living there couldn't afford to stay there and it's become an extension of the city rather than part of the East End. And, and yet, even with the changes and the gentrification you're talking about, it sounds as though Clerkenwell, for example, has still held on to its protest past. <laughs> uh, maybe this area will too. Well, um, it, it's very hard to erase that past uh, completely, but what worries me, and it's something which I do refer to in the book and when I've given talks about the book, is that some of the... Some of the Things that have been done to memorialise struggles, like putting plaques up, drawing, painting murals, as as those properties change, where those memorials are, sometimes those memorials come down and disappear. For example, there's a pub in the East End on Old Ford Road, where when I take people on walks, I used to be able to say to them, look at that pub sign up there with the image of a suffragette selling a newspaper. I can't do that anymore. The pub has changed hands. It's becoming a different kind of venue. But it's right on a street where there, which was very important in the history of the East London suffragettes. There's another street in Donegal Road in Islington which used to have a plaque for a very significant member of the Chartist movement, James Brontero Brian, who published a newspaper called The Poor Man's Guardian, very important radical journalist of his time, and he lived out the last few years of his activist life there. And I used to be able to point to his plaque, 
which was near where he lived. Now I have to say, well, look, there used to be a wall here, and on the wall there used to be a plaque, you know. And so these, you know, these, these things are, are disappearing. And one of my motivations for writing the book was, well, if the actual memorial, physical memorials are going, we can still restore the, these people and their struggles in people's collective memory by writing about them, um, giving their words a platform, yeah? And to get hold of your words, just in time for Christmas, we've got to say, yeah. where can people lay their mitts right. on a copy of your right. volume? My, my, my book, Rebel Footprints, is published by Pluto Press, and they are doing a special offer on a number of books in the run-up to Christmas, so getting quick... Um, How many books have you got out? I've got that one from Rebel Footprints, but also in in 2011, I did a book called Battle for the East End. Um, That was by Five Leaves Publications. And there's a company called Inpress, I-N-P-R-E-S-S, who are distributors for a number of small independent publishers. So, yeah, I've got those those two books out. But also, um, through, through the year... I do walks um, through London's radical history. I started off with one walk in 2007 called the Radical Jewish East End, which is in the area where we're standing now. Uh, I've now got 12 walks, and six of them are in, the, are in the East End, six of them are out of the East End, and there is a Christmas or Hanukkah offer which I'm making for people, which is to buy an original and flexible present, um, which is a voucher, for, for somebody or more than one person to go on one, one of my walks in 2016. You can go to my website www.eastendwalks.com or email me david at eastendwalks.com and to get further details of that. To fuel your inner anarchist. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, I hope that people who come on the walks, I hope that they're people who are just interested in history interested in London but I also hope they'll go away thinking about the connections between the struggles I talk about in the past and the struggles that people engage in today Thank you for taking the time to throw some light on those struggles past and present David Rosenberg, thanks very much Thank you, pleasure And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to David Rosenberg. Thanks to to Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Anquentin Wolf. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.